0: Today, our country faces serious challenges, challenges that require clear, informed thinking, thinking that's outside the box. Your host, Jeff Nyquist. To
1: the ones that wear the uniforms, to the ones that lost their lives, to a nation that's been torn, God hears your painful cries, I will stand with you, my friend. For justice will the man. America,
0: America.
1: Welcome to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist, where we think outside the box. And today's program, we're going to talk about something that people don't quite understand, and it's about the fall of communism. The fall of communism was not a straightforward event. And we're going to have our special guest on the show, Robert Bukhar, documentary film producer, a former citizen of communist Czechoslovakia, who is specifically looking at the fall of communism, a KGB defector, Anatoly Galitsyn. And Galitsyn had been in the KGB, and he knew from his own background that the KGB was preparing in the late 1950s for a gigantic deception of the West planning to have fake splits between communist countries, a controlled collapse of communism into democracies. He wrote a book about this in 1984 before Gorbachev came to power in the Soviet Union. He stated in his book that the Berlin Wall was probably going to come down, that uh, the KGB was going to be reformed, that the Communist Party was going to give up power in the Soviet Union, that the Warsaw Pact alliance was going to break apart. He made about uh, 140-something odd predictions in his 1984 book about the Eastern Bloc. By 1994, about 94% of these predictions had come true. This is an astonishing thing. Now, Galitzin tried to tell the Kennedy White House, he tried to tell the higher leaders of the CIA about his insights into long-range Soviet strategy, but people didn't want to hear it. There is in the West a decision on a cultural level,
0: on a government level, to not accept this testimony, to not accept the truth that a man came from the KGB decades ago, predicted that the Soviet Union would fake its own collapse. And, and even though evidence continues to stream out of Eastern Europe that the collapse of communism was orchestrated by the KGB, controlled by the KGB for purposes of Moscow's long-range strategy, We can't get anybody here to print it, to talk about it, to accept it, to say anything other than the people who claim it are nuts. To say that Galitzin is a madman, or Jeff Nyquist, who's been writing about this for 10 years, is a little bit off his nut. No, they want to deny it. And I want to show to the listeners tonight with my guest, Robert Bukhari. He's been working on a documentary film to prove these things. And we're going to hear why the truth has not been accepted in the United States and why it's been blocked at every turn, and you, the public, don't know about it. We'll be back
1: with Robert Bucar my guest, after these messages.
0: You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. WIBG 1020, live local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, oh, it's a on one side. Side kick, they blew it, but the Vikings right there to field it. I think it takes guts to come out like you are doing right now.
2: And if all of us will listen to this station, more I'm just so keen up about it. We talked about by the We are
0: going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020. We're everywhere.
1: I'm Jeff Nyquist, back with Outside the Box, and I've got my special guest with me, Robert Bucar. He's a documentary film producer working on a film exposing the deception and the collapse of communism in Eastern Europe. Welcome to the show, Robert.
2: Hi, Jeff. Thanks for having me again.
1: This is a very interesting project because what you're doing is, is something that nobody has been interested in doing before, and yet the testimony and the evidence is clearly out there. You've found it. You've interviewed these unique people. And uh, one of the people you interview is uh, Vladimir Bukovsky, a leading dissident and and uh, sort of a historian who was in the Gulag. And he he makes an interesting statement in, in your interview with him, and I have the transcript of some of your interviews here. And I'd just like to read this to the listeners. Bukovsky writes, The West never understood the Soviet system as such. Well, when I say that I mean mainstream politicians, media, and academics, of course... The left, left left-leaning parties and organizations, they they understood it much better, but they perceived them as allies, and they would never disclose what was the essence of it, of the Soviet system. But they would at least understand. The more conservative, central conservative forces have never understood what the Soviet system is about. It's very difficult to understand for someone who never lived there. To imagine that the whole structure would be done according to some kind of dogma, every nut and bolt of it, and governed by that dogma, generated a century ago by some kind of obscure German philosopher, it's so alien to the Western psyche. I mean, they don't believe in ideologies, and they don't live by any ideologies. They don't understand ideologies. If you talk to politicians, they're all pragmatic. They believe that everything is negotiable. And to explain to them that in the Soviet policy, Soviet decision-making, nothing is negotiable, really, and it's all this for them to enforce their own approach and their own opinion... Well, they don't believe you. I found this statement by Bukowski to be profound and a spot-on observation from my experience of observing the people who watch the former communist system.
2: Yeah, it's it's, it's a bottom line of, of, of all of those problems or issues because one side never understood the other side. And it it's it was both sided, you know the same way Russians never understood Americans. so uh, that uh, that's somehow in a way ironic because when I talk to some other like people from CIA, let's say, they pretty much admitted that uh, as well as uh, Americans could never understand what's in Russian's mind, you know Russians could never understand what's Americans mind on the other side. And it's pretty much it's an issue of, of communication that shows that uh, there is no way, that the, the thinking of both sides is on different levels, which are incomprehensible.
1: Un- yeah, and, and of course we all kind of think, or imagine that other pe- people think like we do, that our own thinking is the model for uh, other people's thinking. So what we do is, a Russian uh, mind is just sort of an American mind in Russia you know, according to Americans. And and for Russians, who have a a completely different strategic and cultural outlook, the Americans are just versions of of Russians over here. So, therefore, the Russians are always accusing the Americans of plotting against them. And the Americans always think that the Russians really want peace and want to have fair dealing with them.
2: (laughs) Yeah, it goes with the mindset of the, like, majority population, which... uh has its roots in the history well
1: speaking of history you also what's fascinating in your interviews you interviewed a number of uh, specific figures in the uh, Velvet Revolution in, in Czechoslovakia in 1989 and this one particular fellow you interviewed, Zivček, I'm going to ask you to talk about him for a minute. Um, he was a secret police official there? Yeah, he was
2: a sign captain of secret police, yeah.
1: And what was his responsibility within the, the revolution of, uh, of 1989 in Czechoslovakia?
2: Well, according to him, he was assigned to create a sort of cover-up dissident organization within students' movement in the university. Uh, and uh, that organization had to sort of develop the partnership with other dissident organizations. And at the end, his specific, uh, you know, unit uh, was in charge of uh, leading uh, students' demonstration on November 17 and pretty much jump the revolution or takeover because during that demonstration what happened was that demonstration crowd went to the specific uh, place and in that place it was confronted by riot police and one person was supposedly killed and that was sort of that emotional moment, that climax which supposed to start that that revolution and, and turned down the previous government and of course Ludwig Zivczak was that person who was supposedly killed. So they, they
1: staged basically a riot where the riot police showed up, and they also staged the death of a martyr to this revolution. And, of course, no one really died, but they needed a body, so Zivchek himself was the body of the martyred student.
2: Yeah, and they had to stage that all... Uh prominent of dissident movement, will be around Zivchak at that moment when it will happen, so they will eyewitness it, you know, and actually it was the other weird, sort of strange guy, dissident Peter Uhl, who was the person who send this information to BBC, to London and around the globe immediately.
1: And of course there is a uh, some kind of memorial uh, to this uh, martyred person that Zivchak uh, mentions that he is the... The, just about the only person in the revolution who has a memorial to him, though he's still alive, that he can go and visit his own
2: gravesite. Not a gravesite, but the place that he's actually the martyr who was killed. And he you've got, like, every November 17th, there are crowds of people, you know, gathering about that memorial place. There is a plaque on the wall, and there is... There are, Hundreds of candles to lighten and flowers to lay down and stuff like that. It's incredible. And actually, there are pictures on internet. Actually, President Klaus and all other politicians laying, you know, down flowers on the day every year in in, in memory of, of this this happening. So it's 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 nuts, you know.
1: A secret police fabrication. Um,
2: yeah.
1: <laughs> here's a quote from Zivcek about Vaclav Havel who was a dissident who took over the government or became president of Czechoslovakia after the revolution. He said, Václav Havel, during his incarceration in Ostrava Hermanovici prison, was living under completely different conditions than other inmates. He was allowed to receive gifts and enjoyed preferential treatment. After all, it is now well known that when he was released from this prison there was a car from one embassy waiting to pick him up and took him directly to the embassy. So Vaclav Havel was yeah. a one-of-a-kind uh, prisoner.
2: Yeah, that's right, because he was not treated as a prisoner. If you look at the other prisoners at that time, like... Uh, I don't Vladimir know Huchin, Vladimir you yeah. know, Petr Cibulka. Those guys were really hard-labor, you know, prisoners. They were actually lucky to survive. You know, the treatment, they beat and you know, tortured and all that stuff. This guy was sitting in the warm cell, I mean, he was allowed to write letters. He was getting, you know, caviar and cigars to smoke and stuff. So it was a different thing.
1: You know, when, when Zivchak is asked, who wrote the script for this revolution in 1989? And he said, it certainly wasn't the West. It wasn't the CIA. It was the East. It was from the Soviet side. They wrote the script. They guided the events, and the other witnesses and people you talk to, they have a similar story that the orders were coming down from Moscow to make this revolution. It was organized; the dissident movement was organized. It was infiltrated, it was penetrated, it was controlled, so that the whole process would be guided of this revolution by agents of Moscow, basically.
2: Yeah, that's and that's correct. That's actually. The same information are coming from American side. When I had those discussion with CIA people, one high-ranking, you know, person from CIA at that time said the same thing. When I asked him, wasn't it uh, strange, you know, that this movement you knew was run by KGB and were financing all this movement through Soros and other sources? And he just smiled and said uh, wouldn't you give up such an opportunity? So that was pretty much, you know, saying, yes, we we did it, we did it on purpose, you know.
1: They financed the movement even though they knew that the KGB was in control of it.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, because because KGB, that dissident movement, that fake dissident movement, that was Andropov's idea, which started somewhere around 1967. Mm -hmm. So that was sort of, part of the plan to change the system. You create false dissident movement, you know, dissident recover, mm. Then people who are running new government are the people who weep, but, in. You know. So, I guess, see, I had no choice, and that was the only way to how to get in, just, you know, okay, so we will support those people, we will sort of get in some sort of agreement, who will be whom, you know, and I, I guess at the end, it was not total failure, because Russians didn't get their people in the key positions in many of those states, the, the people they actually wanted to be there. There was some sort of compromise.
1: You know? Yeah, that's what uh, Bukovsky says. But, you know, it seems to me there's an interesting break in their strategy. They have these different ways to cover their tracks. They, they say, well, this is all spontaneous, or this is coming from Gorbachev, and Gorbachev's really a liberal, and... And there's a struggle between uh, the people who want the changes to be under KGB control and the people that want them to break free of KGB control. And um, I begin to become skeptical as I'm reading the different testimony, and I, it, it turns out that Vaklov Havel is meeting secretly uh, with KGB agents from Moscow during the time he is preparing to take power. And it seemed like the Russians had a spring of these Uh, Dissidents, these controlled individuals. The way the files were secreted away to Moscow, these huge files of people, and all of a sudden files were discovered. But the people who were exposed in those files were sort of put in those files to be sort of destroyed politically, and they were people that the Soviets wanted destroyed. Isn't there indication that this sort of these sort of games were being played as well?
2: Of course, nothing's black and white. You know, it's a very complex operation which uh, can never go exactly, you know, by the rules, so there has to be backup plans for everything, there has to be other options, how to go around, and uh, yeah, so even Petr sibulka these days uh, pretty much is convinced that the files he got enhanced and published were pretty much uh, made to be published and pretty much given to him because many names didn't have any value were in there, so Yes. Those fires which needed to be destroyed were destroyed or moved to Moscow no matter what, and nobody will ever find them.
1: And, of course, Moscow has the power of knowing who was working for them and who wasn't and being able to leak uh, yeah. people and destroy people's careers and to make other people's careers through this process. Yeah,
2: And that includes all database of Charter 77 Foundation, which was... Uh, actually operated from Sweden, from Stockholm, and then disappeared also.
1: Of course, the process becomes so cynical after a while, because when people start to realize that, uh, they can't tell, uh, who's who and what people's relationships were, uh, it, it, it all of a sudden that people become sort of accustomed to this, in in Hungary a few years ago, the Prime Minister admitted that he was actually an officer of the secret police. The President of Bulgaria, who was just re-elected um, last year, admitted that he was actually a recruited agent of the secret police there. It's come out in Poland now. The big scandal is Lech Walesa was an agent of the secret police and that's scandalized the country there. In Poland, of course, in Poland, I think they have a greater national awareness of this problem and a greater resistance to the structures that the Soviets left behind, and people are actively fighting them there, but it seems like in Czechoslovakia, and Bulgaria, in Hungary, and Romania, there's no real battle against these, these Soviet agent networks that remain behind that heavily influence the economy and the governments in these
2: countries. Yeah, of course, and it comes again from the history of Poland and Baltic republics, you know, they are the only places where people have a really life and death, you know, experience with Russians. Those other places, they were never really in the danger of, of life coming from the Moscow. It was just a sort of suppression, but never like a war, you know. So so those people in Poland and Baltic Republic, they see it from different perspectives. They know it's a serious thing.
1: Yeah. You also managed to interview the leading intelligence defector of the Cold War, uh, Ian Pasepa, who was the acting former head of the Romanian Intelligence Service. He was the deputy head of the Romanian Intelligence Service. And he had some very interesting things to say. And uh, among the things he had to say, and I've, I've quoted this before, and I'm going to quote it again, he said to you, "...the whole foreign policy of the Soviet bloc states, indeed its whole economic and military might, revolved around the larger Soviet objective of destroying America from within through the use of lies." The Soviets saw disinformation as a vital tool in the dialectical advance of world communism. KGB priority number one was to damage American power, judgment, and credibility. As a spy chief and a general in the former Soviet satellite of Romania, I produced the very same vitriol John Kerry repeated to the U.S. Congress almost word for word and planted it in leftist movements throughout Europe. KGB chairman Yuri Andropov managed our anti-Vietnam War operation. It's it's interesting what John Kerry said in April of 1971 to Congress. He basically described American troops in Vietnam as as raping, looting, murdering, dismembering people, committing all kinds of atrocities and he listed this as is basically fact that he he'd done this uh, factual study that it was uh, it was on a massive scale in Vietnam. And this is exactly the thing Kerry was telling Congress and it was reported on American television that that the uh, KGB disinformation department was was basically in its satellite uh, security services, were planting in, in in newspapers and places all over the world.
2: Yeah, Pasepa, he was probably the closest, you know, to, the, to Andropov. All of those people who I was able to reach and who can actually find these days still living. So he worked. Directly under Andropov as a chief of Romanian intelligence, and he was part of this operation. So, what he is saying is that KGB was in charge of disinformation, especially against the Vietnam War as well, you know. And actually, if you go to Bukowski's webpage, uh, look in his documents, you find documents which supports how this movement was financed from Moscow.
1: Yeah, and there's, a, there's another uh, bit that Pasepa tells you that I found very fascinating towards the end of your interview with him. He mentioned that the last time he was with Andropov, that Andropov talked about the fact that, uh, that he was going to replace all the, the ambassadors in the Eastern Bloc with, with agents. And that he didn't like these people who just sat around and drank and gossiped all the time, these diplomats. He was going to make them into actual working intelligence officers. And then he sort of boasted, and Pasepa calls him Russian to the marrow of his bones, uh, that Andropov boasted that our security services are going to rule for 500 years.
2: Yeah. He actually said they are ruling now and they will rule 500 years from now, no matter what.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Because that's that's how they are. The whole, you know, uh, agenda, foreign policy, and everything is uh, pretty much uh, running according to this, you know, doctrine. So-
1: I am reminded, incredibly, of a book by Joseph Conrad that was written a hundred years ago, that was uh, was called The Secret Agent, and this was before the Bolshevik Revolution. This was when the Tsar was in power, and it was about Russian, a Russian secret agent in London who was called to the Russian embassy because he had to make it look as though an anti-Zarist terrorist organization had blown up uh, Greenwich Observatory. So it was his job to blow up Greenwich Observatory, this Russian agent in London. And this guy, he, he ran a little pornography shop in London, in some uh, squalid corner of London, and his wife had a retarded child, and so he sent the retarded child with the bomb to Greenwich Observatory as the means of delivering it, and of course the retarded child blew himself up on the way. And Scotland Yard got into it, but again, it's the story of the security services of Russia involved in conspiracies in which acts of terrorism are committed by themselves but blamed on others. And of course they also, under the Tsars' period, took over a dissident or uh, anti-Tsarist movements, uh, there's even a story that Stalin was an informant for the, for the Okhrana, the Tsar's secret police, at one time. So that, so that you have this incredible uh, system, uh, which the Bolsheviks perfected to a great degree, the Communists perfected, and spread to countries like Czechoslovakia, Romania, Poland. Um and the West doesn't, what, going back to what Bukowski says, the West does not understand any of this.
2: No, they don't understand, and they can't, and they don't want to understand it. I guess that's the other thing because it somehow you know disturbs your s- state of mind to just hear this stuff and if you If you have to admit that that's the case it's it's amazingly disturbing <laughs>
1: no now, you interviewed uh, Robert Gates, who was the head of the CIA during the collapse of the Soviet Union, and I read the statements that Gates made in there and i I've, I've read the statements of Bukowski and Zivchak and all the other dissidents and defectors that you have interviewed, people from over there, the other side of the the Iron Curtain Divide. And uh it seemed, seemed incredible to me, but I got the impression that Robert Gates was completely at sea. He did not understand the Soviet system. He didn't understand how the secret police worked. He didn't have any idea of what they were really like or what they were really up to.
2: Well... Maybe he doesn't want to say that or cannot say it through us, but that's what he's saying. And it looks like it was the case for the whole CIA. Like, look at it that way. Even Bagley pretty much admitted, you know, that after the Cold War ended and he was able to talk to his counterparts in Moscow in KGB who actually worked against him in the past, he realized that all operations CIA was doing after World War II in Poland, till the end of Cold War, were set up by KGB. So that means that CIA had no clue what's going on in Eastern Bloc. Mm-hmm. So they were pretty much walking in darkness for all that time. So he, they couldn't understand what the heck is going on, because they didn't pay attention to those defectors who were saying important things
1: Yeah, And, of course, uh, defectors like Anatoly Galitsyn, who amazingly predicted the collapse of the Soviet Union, predicted it would be organized from the top, that the KGB would be involved in organizing and directing the collapse of communism. And, And, of course, it happened just the way Galitsyn in 1984 predicted. And that's rather remarkable. But Galitsyn's name is mud in the CIA. They don't want to hear about him. They don't want to talk about him. They think he's discredited.
2: Well it's not just these guys you got like Ladislav Bitman or Vladimir Sakharov who testify about how KGB is uh, running Middle East you know or Stanislav Levchenko who testify in 82 about KGB influence over American press oh yes and Nobody makes a big deal out of it. Nobody listens. Nobody notices. You
1: know? No, they don't. They don't pay attention. Here you have a culture, the United States, and you would think that you'd admit that I don't really understand the Russians. So let's listen to what a Russian has to say. Let's hear what a Russian, who's risked his life like Sergei Tretyakov to defect, has to say. And the most astonishing statement that Tretyakov says, which is the same as Vasepa told you, he used the term "destroy America." that that's their goal. And here, Pasepa defected almost 30 years ago, and uh, Trechikov d- uh, defected within the present decade. And they're both saying the same thing, whether or not the Soviet Union's in power. I mean, Trechikov said that even more than during the Cold War, the present Russian Federation wants to destroy the United States.
2: So communism was sort of discarded, you know, Taken away from dictionaries, so now there is no communism. There is no danger, but it doesn't matter how you call it. You know,
1: right? Yeah, they put the danger. The danger was in the word, uh, yeah. And they took the word away, so okay, there's no danger. But the danger wasn't in the word; it was in the people and the organization that has continuity, as we can see with uh, Vladimir Putin in the Kremlin over there, uh, and the fact that 80% of the Russian government is uh, KGB.
2: Yeah. Some things are really, like, terrifying and eye-opening, like, if you go back to Vladimir Sakharov, who actually testified, you know, about Soviet push in the Middle East, like, according to what he said to Congress, you know, in 1980, KGB had 2,000 agents fluent in uh, local languages in Islamic countries, you know, and the Middle East was the KGB's top priority as the key to breaking Western, you know, democracies.
1: Yeah, because our dependence on oil.
2: Yeah, so now when you look what's going on there, you know, you can tie the knots and see oh, damn, you know, this is a big thing, but. Seems like nobody wants to admit it publicly. No, that this is what's going on, and everybody's looking for excuses why certain things are happening in Iraq or some other places. But it's all like a Potemkin village type of situation. You know?
1: Yeah, and, and well, and we know from news reports, it's common knowledge that the Russians and the Chinese have been assisting the Iranians in developing nuclear and missile forces, which is precipitating this crisis with Iran. In which uh, the question of do we bomb Iran or do we allow Iran to start producing a hundred nuclear weapons a year? once they get their weapons manufacturing capacity going at full tilt. And, of course, you know what Israel thinks, is Israel thinks now that they're going to have to nuke Iran preemptively because Iran is one day going to exterminate Israel. Uh, And and so this crisis is all brought about by who? Enabled by the Russians and their Chinese allies, which used to be called the Communist bloc, but now we just call the Chinese our trading partners and the Russians our allies in the war against terror.
2: You know, it's always like... when I talk to Barkley about who can see what's going on, you know, these days probably nobody can see the big picture. Mm-hmm. And everything what we hear and see in media is pretty much uh, not exactly what's going on. It, it's a way just cover up story to cover something else. Like for example, how many people got information that Russians invaded Georgia? That actually that there was an Israel airbase, which Israel is used. To spy with drone planes on Iran, and the Russians really wanted to stop that. Mm. You know, so then you start wondering why actually they invited, you know, Georgia. And there are other reasons they just, you know, what we are hearing. There are more serious reasons.
1: Right, because there's a there's a bigger game being played, and the game yeah. is being played against the United States. There was one uh, defector I really wish that you'd gotten a chance to interview, and that was Alexander Livinenko who was, when you were doing your interviews with some of the folks in Britain, like Bukovsky and uh, was there, but you weren't able to get an interview with him, and he has since been assassinated, and we know he was assassinated by Moscow. But he is very famous for saying that the number two guy in Al-Qaeda, the guy who really runs Al-Qaeda, Ayman al-Zawari, is a long-time KGB agent.
2: Yeah, Litvinenko... He refused to talk on camera about these things.
1: Why Why do you think he refused to talk on camera?
2: I don't know. I have no idea. Maybe he was uh, suspicious, he was careful, he was scared, you know.
1: Yeah, as we know.
2: But the interesting part is that Gordievsky, you know, who was helping me to get in contact with him, said later, don't worry about, about Litvinenko. He's young, he doesn't know anything anyway. Which is quite sort of strange, and in a, in a way, Gordievsky had no idea, actually, what Litvinenko knows and how serious that is. So that, again, shows you even insiders, you know, don't have the whole picture of what's going on.
1: No, that's right. And So in this documentary project, what you've done is you're basically talking to the different men who are holding different parts of the elephant, saying what they think they're touching.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's fascinating when you compare how different people see it from different perspectives. But even everybody see it his own way, in the whole picture, it's the same picture. It's the same thing, come to the same point.
1: Yeah, and uh, it, it's it's interesting, the Bukovsky information, he got a hold of archives from the Communist Party. He smuggled out documents, and of course you can go to his website, which, uh, in the top of my head, I don't know. You can just do a search, uh, a yeah, Google yeah. search with Bukovsky's name and you should be able to find them. Um, some of which have been translated from Russian. But basically, what he says is that this, uh, this plan of, of controlling the collapse of communism for a strategic purpose goes back at least to the 1970s under Andropov. And of course, if Kalitsyn's right, they first started talking about it in the late 1950s. So that this is a a project a long term project of uh, the Kremlin over decades and um and of course uh, there was a there was a bit about uh, Bukowski related about um, Gorbachev himself referring to two hundred and something documents in this plan that he was following when he was brought to book about yeah, yeah. bungling the plan or making mistakes
2: yeah that's that, that thing which actually probably nobody in the West can sort of comprehend it. Little group of people who have an influence on on policies in the country for half of the century, Unthinkable in the United States, you know. So you got those guys from KGB, you know, headed by Andropov, who raised to the power after a revolution in Hungary, actually, and from that point he took pretty much over the agenda and went systematically, you know all the way to actually restructuring the regime to get rid of stigma of communism and bring it on the level of Western thinking, Western acceptance and and market economy, but without losing the objective to destroy Western democracies.
1: And, of course, it's hard to tell, but where do you put this whole process now that you've done this, you've been working on this documentary project for, what, three years now? Four, uh, years. four years. Four now. years now. Time uh, flies. Yeah, time flies. Uh, where do you think the 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 Russians and the Soviets are in their process? Are they about to put together the Soviet system and turn the tables on the West? That they have accomplished what they wanted to accomplish during this period of of the collapse of communism, and that they they're now ready for a new Cold War. They're moving back. What what is your sense from talking to these people?
2: Well, I I, I don't personally, I don't think very coming anything like new cold war there is just what's going to happen more and more they will tie the screw on europe and slowly take uh, uh, control over over that you know european community that that's pretty much um, what actually even bukowski is saying it was the original plan to squeeze former eastern europe between western europe and russia and pretty much use them as much as possible so they can control them completely. Of course, it didn't went exactly that way, but, you know, Germany is pretty much well under influence of Russia now, yeah. more than anybody else in Europe. And the whole European Union existence is shaky, you know, and uh, uh, it's constantly expanding, but, it you know, it's bureaucratic, heavily bureaucratic. And if you look at all those... Uh, EU, you know, institutions, it's all following the principle of, of former Soviet institutions, you know, it's, it's the same model, a highly socialist model. And now, if you add an energy dependency from Russia and their influence over economy and politics in, in Eastern European countries, so there is no way that in the near future uh, Eastern Europe will become really democratic, you know.
1: Yeah. Uh, so basically, what this whole strategy is accomplishing is to bring the one European house that Gorbachev talked about, where all the Europeans are together with Russia, in Europe from the Atlantic to the Urals. That it's a, that it's one great big gigantic Russian-dominated continent, and America's sort of gone. NATO's gone. There's no real Cold War. There's no resistance to Russian dominance. Russia just simply dominates.
2: Yeah, I guess, I don't know if dominance will be the right word. I would say it's influence, you know, strong influence, dominant influence, strong influence. Dominant so, influence. The dominant so pretty influence. much push Americans out of influence in, in that region. Uh you huh. know.
1: Uh-huh. And, of course, if, if America is pushed out of its influence in Europe and out of the Middle East, and now we know Latin America, what yeah. you're seeing is America really will be completely isolated. Won't it will be completely cut off and isolated from everybody.
2: If NATO collapse, you know, so what will be left influence in Europe? It will be completely under Russian influence.
1: So it will be just like Lenin said, we will socialize the world until the United States is the last dinosaur of capitalism, and then we'll just strangle it, because it will be all by itself.
2: Yeah, and look at around <laughs> the globe. I guess the socialist, you know, system is in majority these days, plenty of it. Even like uh, Gates was saying that he doesn't see any reason... Socialism will come back i I guess it's coming back very strongly,
1: yeah, he seems to be out of the loop on that one. Nobody bothered to tell him that it's it's already happened that Daniel Ortega is in power in Nicaragua, and you got Hugo Chavez in Venezuela and Evo Morales in Bolivia and Lula de Silva in Brazil. And the rest of them are all kind of starting to fall into line with that. And the Columbia is still holding out in the Civil War, but you know what the Democratic Congress is going to do to that? They're going to yes. abandon Columbia, so Columbia is going to be squeezed. So pretty soon, and we know Mexico is controlled by the Russian, ma- Russian and Chinese and Mexican mafias. So that leaves the entire of Latin America basically in the Russian yes.
2: influence zone of influence. I guess. Yeah, could. and then you look at the African continent. Oh yeah, n- n- nothing grows there, and Asia. So so what's left here, you know, that <laughs> yeah.
1: so they basically get it they take over the world and they leave America and of course we've got well, you could say that Obama, the furthest left senator ever elected to the US Senate, has now been elected to the presidency. And uh that uh that really is astonishing. It it reminds me of of a of a quote um from uh, We Will Bury You, Jan Sena in his nineteen eighty two book He wrote about the plan that they were told about in Czechoslovakia in 1967 when Konstantin Katushev came from the Soviet Central Committee of the Soviet Party to inform them what the strategy was. And he said that looking uh, 30 years and beyond, the United States is going to suffer a depression. They're going to elect a progressive president who's going to be a transitional figure between the United States transitioning from the current capitalist system and the other system because capitalism is going to experience this crisis. Uh, if the the economic parameters are correct, the American workers and people will turn against the system and capitalism will no longer be viable since the elite in the United States is liberal, they will feel ashamed <laughs> and you know it, it goes on and this book was written in 8'2 by a guy who was who was re- recollecting what uh, Soviet strategic leaders were telling the Czechoslovak communist leadership in 1967.
2: Yes, and, uh, yeah, he knew that pretty much, uh, that was the way how undermined Western establishment by manipulation from the marketplace. He knew it, but that, again, that's something that nobody wants to hear. And they pretty much went a long way to discredit Sheila on both sides, you know. Yeah. Here and in, in Czech Republic where he came from as well. It's, it's quite funny. The huge website about Sheila, who pretty much, they say, was nobody. But they have a huge website with all the material in just to discredit him. And uh, when I talk to some people who are actually digging in the files, they created an institute for studies of totalitarian regimes so they have access to secret files and they digging stuff. So even the person one of them told me, Well Shana now is not taken seriously But he admitted that in those files they find some documents which actually exactly support what he said you know so yeah he's a liar but yeah he he was right <laughs> <laughs> that
1: is most amazing and the same thing about galitzin they they have to these defectors that talk about this strategy it's like yeah for the devil to do his work people must believe there is no devil and the devil has in the first instance convinced them there is no devil yeah, And they're able to operate like this. And whenever you try to mention this or bring it up, people think you're crazy.
2: Yeah. Another anecdote about Shayna, uh, after I met a couple of times with Joe Douglas and talked about Shayna, I said, well, this is interesting. That would be film or documentary itself, you know, about Shayna. Mm-hmm. So I had a guy I knew who was my former producer in, when I was working in, in Prague. And he was, at the same time, he was the colonel of military intelligence. So, uh, and anytime I went to Prague, I just met him, you know, very interesting, educated guy, uh, speaking many languages. Uh, he was attaché in China, France, you know. And during my times, he was producer on mostly on films, documentary films. He went around the world when nobody could travel. Mm-hmm. and every time they went somewhere to shoot something and when they came back there was a revolution you know, there was like a, <laughs> it was like it was a Portugal, Nicaragua Middle East war and stuff like that but anyway so I sent him a document with names Shayna named during his interrogation during his debriefing in CIA and I asked her, this guy do you know any of these people and can you put me in touch with who you know, who actually knew Shana. And from that point he stopped any communication, he disappeared, you know. <laughs> oh man. When I came when I came to Prague to meet him, we had set appointment, he didn't show up. Uh so I shot all that other stuff and day or two before my departure his wife called me and said, Well you know, we had to move, we changed the phone number, you know, apologize for that, blah, 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 and then, you know, he, he vanished from radar screen. So, there must be something in that.
1: Yeah, well, there's the thing that's interesting is, is that if, if you look at this, if you look at this, uh, fact that people are still covering up, the truth is not out, people don't want to talk about it as if they would be punished for speaking out of school, that means the system's still running, the game's still afoot, the strategy is still on, only it's such a subtle, beautiful, patient strategy. And they have all the time in the world, and they have the organization to actually, the organization built to carry it out.
2: Yeah. Yeah, look at here and Huchin. you know. Zivchak organized all that thing, you know, play that, whatever. Mm-hmm. Then Huchin came in, came from the prison, became officer of the new intelligence services. Went actually after Divchak that he's involved in a radical, you know, left terrorist movement and his connection with Iraq and stuff like that. Then Huchin ended up in the jail, you know.
1: Mm-hmm. In, in a democratic jail.
2: A democratic jail. He was sued for process went for five years before he was acquitted of everything. And Dzhivchak in meantime is doing his work without any interruption.
1: yeah. Yeah, it's very interesting. And in the great dissident, Vaclav Havel did nothing, did not lift a finger to help Huchin.
2: Yeah, well, that was that whole dissident movement, how it was established, if you go back again. So, let's say KGB ran the movement, so they came to the point that that whole Charter 77 organization, which developed underground, snowballed too many people who shouldn't be there, who were real revolutionaries in a way, you might say. So what they did, they either put them in jails or forced them to immigrate outside, you know. So then they cleaned up the system, and only the citizens who left were those who were pretty much approved. Yeah. It's ugly like that, simple like that. And then they sealed all files on those people who stayed in the system. So those files nobody will ever see, so nobody would ever be able to say what happened how they were involved in that in that process and so on and the only person who knew where the file goes two years ago i think uh, he died in car accident so <laughs> yeah
1: it is it is interesting um very interesting and of course the financial elite in the west uh, you know, so willing to work and cooperate with Gorbachev and these other people because they think, you know, oh, they're turning our way, they're becoming capitalistic. We'll work with them. We'll, we'll, we'll help them to integrate with us, thinking they're winning, but they're really just giving the keys to the kingdom over to Russia. So now, now Russia has gained an influence tremendously and 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 been able to penetrate and infiltrate more and further everywhere. And you interviewed Bill Gertz, the Washington Times national security correspondent, and and he was very negative on the CIA and the U.S. security establishment. He basically painted them to you as a bunch of Keystone cops, didn't
2: he? Yeah, right, and probably rightfully so because they really never had really. Inside and they just serve the president. So CIA is collecting information what president wants to hear. You know.
1: Yeah, yeah. That's what somebody told me. I I worked when I was graduate school. I, I I had a professor in graduate school who worked every other year in Washington, and he once made the statement that what they do, these intelligence analysts in Washington, they all spend the day calling around to find out what the higher ups want to hear, and then they cater to it. They basically uh, do their analysis around what the higher-ups want to hear, and that keeps them in their job. If if you actually did your own independent analysis, you weren't going to be invited back the next time to work in Washington.
2: Yeah, like, what was the name of that uh, fact that archivist from KGB would have... Oh, yeah, Matrokin. Matrokin. So, you, you see, the same thing. So, CIA didn't want him. And then, like, uh, the other guy told me, well, when I wanted to actually see what those documents he brought in are about, I had to beg, you know, MI6 to let me peek in it, you know. <laughs> and many things what he actually brought in were, were true, you know. And were, he was right. He had right information. But nobody in America was interested to actually talk about it.
1: Yeah, now that's the other thing, interest. Uh, how much interest have you found among investors or people in your video project here, I mean your documentary project?
2: Oh man, that's another story. It's like surprising to me. I I knew it wouldn't be easy, but that actually that high-level, hundred percent level of of negative, you know, attitude to this project what I'm en- encountering it's it's amazing actually. And for my partner in Toronto, he's he's mesmerized <laughs> by this because it never happened to him. He was he's working on some other project as well, but on this it's like a zero. Anytime, anywhere you go. The There is a like excitement in the beginning, a little bit, mm-hmm. and there is a total silence when actually those people are trying to avoid you. And I contact pretty much, we contacted everybody you can imagine from CBC and History Channel and Discovery to MSNBC, CNN, BBC, PBS, you know. And so let's say half of them never respond, and those who respond, usual answer is uh, like, yeah, but this topic doesn't fit in our programming profile,
0: Mm -hmm. and that's
2: it so pretty much, you know nobody in media wants to bring this up and it's very ironic that actually all money I so far get in this project and which helped me to actually shoot it you know, and, and now editing are coming from a source which is extremely liberal source, it's Columbia College, which is a very liberal, you know, art institution. Hmm. I find it ironic, really. (laughs) But (laughs) I must say that even those on the other side, on the right, it's not left or right. Even on the right, you know, like, I try to contact David Horowitz many times. Mm -hmm. I I contact people in Heritage Foundation, uh, Lee Edwards, you know, and uh, people like that. Same thing, you know. They don't want to think. I'm...
1: No, right. And it's, it's just like Bukowski said, is, he, is the conservatives in America are the ones that seem to understand communism even less than the liberals. Yeah. Which is uh, very interesting. I, I find that very interesting. And I find it very true. It was my experience as well. And, um, you know, because they have their economic view. Oh, well, socialism doesn't work. It's going to collapse. It's collapsed. It's uh, Reagan won the Cold War. They don't want to hear that maybe it wasn't really a clear-cut win like they think. They don't want to feel like they're going to have to go back and do this over again or, or, or have to explain that they're struggling against socialism and socialism is somehow winning. And right up to the victory of Barack Obama in this election, a lot of my conservative friends absolutely refused to believe that it was even possible for Barack Obama, someone that far to the left, to win the presidency in the United States. And I kept telling well, why isn't it possible? The whole country's changed. Everything's moving further to the left. What are you, what are you talking about?
2: You know, I, I went, uh, two years ago, I went to Washington to film a uh, uh, dedication of that uh, memorial of, to the victim of communism which Heritage Foundation was sponsoring. So, I booked the, this trip with them far in advance. When I got there, I was detained by secret service. I was not allowed to actually film it. And then, next day I went to those uh, ra- roundtable discussion with all those people who who came in. And it was fascinating, well, amazing stories from all around the country, you know, how people suffer, you know, through that communist history. But I got a feeling from the whole thing that the whole attitude to this is, okay, let those guys sort of uh, lift on. They will die soon, and we will go on. We'll forget to communism, you know, and not because there was not like serious interest actually in what those people are saying. You know, people are just saying certain things, but it was like, okay, let's talk. <laughs> it will go out. It will go away. It was very, very sad, you know, sort of feeling that you realize that.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah. All this are presented here, you see that it still exists, you know, but nobody gives a damn anymore, because it's communism is a history, it doesn't exist anymore.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's like um, Andrei Nafrosov said, he said that they never understood the right word wasn't communism, the right word was totalitarianism or secret police regime. Yeah. Um and and that that didn't stop they've created a new sleeker more effective more clandestine way of controlling and manipulating it's not the old brutal stalinist way but it can it can turn very brutal it's, as someone you were trying to interview Alexander Lvinenko was killed between you know in the process uh, of the last uh, 2 3 years uh these people what they're saying is actually, there are forces that are willing to stop their mouths by killing them.
2: Yeah, as Peter uh, uh, Tibulka is saying, you know, in, uh, in, in Prague, he thinks, so if new intelligence services now in post-communist uh, you know, Czech, Czech Republic during 20 years were unable to find any KGB agents, there are only two possibilities. First, there is none, which is nonsense, or they are all in the government. <laughs> <laughs> and,
1: of course, that is completely logical and, and inarguable, basically. Uh, that is the way it is. And, of course, you got to wonder, The you know, I, I've talked to uh, intelligence defectors, and one of my questions was, well, what kind of agents did you recruit in the United States? And the guy looked me straight in the eye at the time I was with a bunch of journalists and he said journalists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's who they recruit. And so if the number 1 target for recruitment in the United States is journalists, and they've got the money and the resources and the manpower devoted to recruiting journalists, what do you think we're hearing on the news and why do you think things you know how are we being influenced in this country? And I think there is there is this influence this slant people just don't see it we're like fish in water we don't know it's water passing through our gills cuz we're always around it's always around us we just take it for granted but it's right here it's it's all around us we're being influenced and we don't even realize it
2: yeah, uh, this is very you know uh, sensitive issue when we bring this up. You know, people get nuts when we say that.
1: <laughs> because you're saying something paranoid, I suppose, <laughs> instead of something yeah, that's... that's objectively true. Uh, it's amazing to me how people blank out the existence of these enormous totalitarian regimes with their, with hundreds of thousands of of agents around the world operating in in hundreds of countries, and and they can just look at that and say, oh, it's nothing. We have our CIA. Which completely misunderstand the CIA's tiny compared to these groups it's incompetent compared to the professionalism of these groups and it's it's just not you can't it's like measuring apples in oranges. it's more like measuring apples and little pomegranate seeds is what it's more like you know yeah. it's, it's just not the same thing at all and of course when you you yourself have talked to CIA people you can get kind of dismayed and think well don't they realize they're who they're up against? Don't they understand their enemy? Don't they know the methods their enemy are using? Don't they realize that they, they've been tricked or fooled or that this isn't really what it appears to be? And you talk to them and they don't seem to show any indication that they really understand at all.
2: Well, again, all those people working in the field, they don't know they are doing their tasks, their operations. So everything is in the brain part of that organization which, of course, its mindset, it's different.
1: Yeah, yeah, and in this case, the mindset was, in the United States, was educated at our liberal universities, where Marxist professor was mainstream, and uh, they themselves have more Marxist views than some of the uh, the East agents they're working against.
2: Yeah, you know, look at Venona, you know, case, you know, when they those transcripts were released in... Uh, Early 90s, I guess. Yeah. When they found out that there was like a 50 KGB agents in CIA when CIA was founded, you know. So give me a break.
1: Yeah. Well, Robert, we've gone an hour on this podcast just about. I want to thank you for giving us that much of your time, and uh, I'm hoping that in the coming days there's going to be an igniting of interest. We've had Russia invade Georgia. We we've seen Russia playing its cards in Europe to try to bring Germany into a special relationship with Russia to dominate Europe. And so these things are, are playing out. And and maybe people are going to wake up and they're going to want to see your documentary.
2: Can we just say that people can get more information on my website? Yes, which please. Is, which is accessible to your website if they click uh, under the trailer which is running there. And it, it, yeah. it will take them directly. Or they can Google Bukhar film. And I must say that by the end of the year, I will start a dedicated website to this project, which will be www.collapseofcommunism.com. So that it's coming up, it's uh, in progress, working progress. Now. And of
1: course, that's Robert Bukhar, Bukhar spelled uh, B as in boy, U-C-H-A-R. And also at the jrnyquist.com website, you can see there's a trailer of the documentary there. You can see some excerpts from it and you can then link to Robert's site. So, well, Robert, I want to thank you for being with us.
2: Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Dyquist.
0: WIBG 1020 live local radio for Atlantic City, Cape May, and all of South Jersey. All right, oh, on one five
2: kick they bloop it, but the Vikings uh-huh. right there to field it. I think it takes guts
0: to come out like you are doing right now. And if all of us will listen to this case more,
2: I'm just so keyed up about it. We talked about it by the hour. We
0: are going to pursue this until we're satisfied. WIBG 1020 on your radio, online, or on your cellular. WIBG 1020. We're everywhere. Listening to Outside the Box with Jeff Nyquist. We've been building a civilization for the last thousand years. It's been called Christian civilization, it's been called European, American civilization, but we've been building it ourselves and our ancestors. And we've developed freedom, free institutions, we've developed technology, advanced ways of doing things, our knowledge has been advancing. But one thing
1: has happened in the last century, and this is the problem that we face today. It's a problem of a civilization that's been building for a thousand years, confronting the fanatics who want an anti-civilization. What would an anti-civilization look like? The Soviet Union, Red China. It's a civilization that's built around principles of destroying a civilization out of envy, out of malice, out of its own failure. And just as civilization seeks to eliminate, you know, things
0: that threaten it, like pirates and like robbers, get control of crime, stop military aggression, the anti-civilization proclaims that the ultimately civilized values are its values, and that anything it does to collapse civilization is justified, and any crime and any atrocity it commits is justified. I mean, this explains Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, it explains the whole group And we're not done with them yet. And we are in danger. I want to thank you for being with us tonight. Join me next week at this
1: time. Until then, take care and be well.